but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everyone, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. Indian Wells has wrapped. There are a mere few weeks left in the tennis calendar. Yeah, the season is coming to a close. And by extension, our season coming to a close with haste. (laughs) Yes. You know, it was a weird Indian Wells happening in the fall. The conditions were strange. I would say that we both kind of paid like half attention don't, to it don't speak for me oh, well i paid I mean, less attention than i would normally <laughs> which we is know not that this much. is your favorite spot on the calendar <laughs> in march and turns out it wasn't any different in october right right Exciting for the people who got to go see live tennis in southern california uh, for the folks who won congrats to them For Lawanda, Queen of Tennis Twitter, who was everywhere at Indian Wells, even got her own segment on Tennis Channel. (laughs) The selfie queen. The fame has expanded beyond Tennis Twitter at this point. Players know her. They come up. It's a boon for them to get a selfie with Lawanda and not the other way around. The Linz tournament is like, hey, are you coming here? We got a ticket for you. (laughs) And my question is, what kind of ticket? Is it a plane ticket? Is it round trip? Mm-hmm. Or is it a single session are, are ticket? Are you her manager now? No, but the audacity of it all to not be specific. A ticket? You realize that she's in California and you're in Austria. Like, <laughs> it takes some doing in a pandemic to bridge the two. Wow, you're really just trying to poo-poo uh, a good move, a good deed. I'm just saying it could be a really nice promo or it could be a really hollow promo gesture. That's all. So who won? Well, let's just say first of all that Indian Wells has been kind of a kingmaker over the last few years. Or in this case, a queenmaker. In that a few of the people who have won have gone on to win their first major later that year. Or have some major results shortly after. The, the most obvious examples are... Naomi Osaka and Bianca Andreescu, both winning Indian Wells, both being really their biggest titles to date, and then winning the U.S. Open the same year. I also see here in your notes that both Serena and Ivanovic won it the year of their first majors. Yeah. Which would have been when? 99 and 2008? Yeah. Serena winning in 99, beating Steffi Groff, and then winning the U.S. Open in September. Ivanovic winning Indian Wells uh, before her Roland Garros title in 08. And one of the very few big spots on Ms. Panetta's Hall of Fame candidacy happened at wow. Indian Wells. <laughs> yeah. 20- I'm told I'm told not any and anybody could win tournaments, big tournaments and Grand Slams back in her day. Raducanu would never have happened back in her day. So she says. That, that came out this week. Uh, you know, it, Italians are known for being straight talkers. I always, you kind of know what to expect when you interview Vinci, Panetta, Fognini. Not, obviously this is a major generalization, but those three are big personalities. Panetta, 
you just wonder from from which perch are you are you asserting that that Emma Raducanu wouldn't happen in your day when you winning a slam was a shock. That's not to say that Panetta's road to that major wasn't high quality because it certainly was. Like she beat top ten and players. She also had a a creditable career. Yeah, it to just that felt. Point. It felt. I, I mean, there is definitely some truth in what she's saying, but it did feel a little bit mean spirited, especially since we know that young people achieve greatness in tennis historically, and then go on to have careers. Like right. that's not that's not a surprising part of it. It becomes more surprising when, say, if Raducanu had been twenty seven years old, and out of the blue, here she comes. From the qualies <laughs> to the top. You know, that's a difference. It just seems so unnecessary to me. Mm. But anyway, the point here was that Panetta won Indian Wells in 2014. And what did she do? Benefited from a certain semifinal loss in 2015 at the US Open of one Miss Serena Williams. And then... But the, the point is, uh, Panetta winning in 2014 was seen as sort of a crowning achievement of a a very good career. It was a late career revival, and her winning the U.S. Open was a shock. But the point I'm trying to make is that Indian Wells' success often presages big-time success at other hardcourt majors. And a lot of times, it's it's your first, it's like your jumping-off point is winning Indian Wells. Okay, point well made. Mm -hmm. So, we're going to talk about Men's first, but uh, the reasons I say that is that Paula Badosa is somebody who's been coming up steadily over the past year or so, and she, as much as anyone, is primed for that next big breakthrough. Mm -hmm. I mean, she started her year on her quarantine soapbox in Australia. <laughs> oh, I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, that happened yeah. this year. See, you know, forget, forgive, achieve. We were spared the ignominity, is that the word? I guess we'll find out. Of uh, a certain Georgian winning on the men's side. We came perilously close to uh, another hardcore title and the biggest one of his career from he who must not be named number two, a gentleman from Georgia, Cameron Norrie. The number 21 beat that guy in three sets and it, it was surprising, but surprising in kind of a WTA kind of way. And I don't mean that to denigrate either tour. It's just that it wasn't like he came out of nowhere. There were results leading up to it. But it was still surprising that he won such a big title. Isn't it sad that you have to preface that? That it's not a knock on the WTA? Because that's how that... That statement is always used. No, I mean, because somebody's going to say, I'm hating on the WTA, or I'm hating on CAM, or men's tennis in general. So I'm just going to, you know, preempt all those. Nori's year had been building in a really impressive way, and so I think we and a lot of other people overlooked him for, for titles of this caliber. But he's been to six finals this year. He won in San Diego two or three weeks ago, won Los Cabos, and then reached the final in Queens, Lyon, and Estoril, and lost to quality opponents in all of those finals, Casper, Berrettini, and Steph. Also a semifinalist at Delray Beach. Yes, early in the year. So it's throughout the year he was achieving big things on 
all surfaces, had wins over Rublev, Team, Dimitrov, Shapovalov, etc. Like the guy I, was I love coming how up. you have Karatsev and Evans listed oh. here, but you have them as etc. Well, I didn't want to go on and on. <laughs> he moves from number 74 in the rankings at the start of the year in January, and he's up to number 16, squarely the British number one. Grigor Dimitrov looked for a little while that he was in position to snatch this one. You know, he's come through and his game has blossomed in tournaments like the ATP Finals, here and there, you know, he has a massive result. Unfortunately, after taking out Medvedev and Orkac, he couldn't do it, losing to Cam Nori, but it's awesome to see Grigor playing well again. I got a bit carried away when I saw those two results because, I mean, Grigor is a fave. Let's be real here for us, for many of y'all. And he's also had a fair bit of bad luck this year, having Mm -hmm. to retire at a couple of the slams, injuries coming up at inopportune moments. He's 30 years old now. It feels like he's been around forever because he has. But this gave hope that maybe all the chapters in his his book hadn't been written yet. (laughs) That maybe there was a plot twist. And you're like, well, damn, this is how it's going to end? But it's something that we deserve, I think. I think it's something Mm -hmm. he deserves. It's something the ATP does not deserve. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like Grigor, even if if you're not attracted to him, because for a lot of folks myself included that's a big part of the draw Mm -hmm. even if you're not into Grigor he just seems like a cool nice guy how many dudes (laughs) could get wrapped up in between Sharapova and Serena in some kind of black-hearted love affair (laughs) get written about and alluded to in the pages of Vogue was it British Vogue or something no it was Rolling Stone Rolling Stone and still be embraced by both camps he, and just be above it all? Yeah. He kind of came out the aggrieved party, but he just rose above it. And now he seems to be well-liked by both sides. Mm-hmm. I'm still still keeping out hope that he and Miss Venus will light a candle. Right. <laughs> Fun fact about this men's tournament. It was a weird tournament from the start. There were a lot of high-profile players missing... But we get to the quarterfinals, and there's still uh, Tsitsipas, Orkac, that guy, AZ, Diego Schwartzman, and every single higher seed lost their match in the quarterfinals. Mm. Now, you spoke of the original that guy, because there's two that guys. There are those guys in this <laughs> yes. episode. Yes. The German giraffe, mm-hmm. he lost spectacularly. At this tournament. It was poetic. It was... I mean... (laughs) This dude was up 5-3 in the third set, serving for the match. He hits a second serve ace to give him match point. Just blasted the serve. And so he, he got a little bit cocky, right? He's like, you know, this is what I've been doing this year. Beefing up my second serve just... In general, just not giving a shit. And it's translated to his second serve as well. After he hits that second serve ace, he puts his finger to his lips to tell the crowd to shut up because he got a bit of heckling in that match. Mm -hmm. And what does he do on the very next point? 
he double falls on match point. <laughs> on <laughs> he his, went for his a, match point. Yeah, he went for another boom blasting second serve, and he double falls it. And that's <laughs> that's all that's all she wrote. Taylor Fritz did the job. Mm-hmm. There were not even that many people there. Like, come on, he was bothered by the home crowd, but. Indian Wells wasn't particularly well attended this year, and it was, it's understandable. Taylor Fritz is a Californian. This is not like Shelby Rogers getting the entirety of the support in Miami. <laughs> you know, like this is this is Taylor Fritz on his home turf. Like, yeah, and whenever that guy plays in Germany, isn't he always screaming, "This is my motherfucking house." Uh, that Boris Becker and Steffi right. Graf built. I, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so uh, we dodged two potential shit show scenarios on the ATP <laughs> tour this this past week. Yeah, it, it puts a lot of pressure on these other guys on the ATP that they have to, uh, in tennis Twitter's eyes, play the hero and take out the villain. Mm. It's just a very gross kind of sleazy dynamic that's going yeah. on right now and you got the impression that andy moore really really wanted to do it against that guy yeah yeah and he was cursing himself as he was leaving the court mm. after he lost that match now on the women's side victoria azarenka had sort of this this surprising run out of nowhere beating kvitova mm, surprising you say more than that Continue. okay beating the giant killer sasnovich Jesse Pegula, Ostapenko, and she was vying to be the only woman to win Indian Wells three times, which is a surprising stat. Uh, it's been a women's tournament since 1989. A few people have done it twice. Serena Williams won in 99 and 01. Had she played between 02 and 15, 2014? or 14? Tw- She returned in 2015. Uh, she probably would have added another one. But it's it's an interesting stat that no one's done it three times. Mm-hmm. So you were going to criticize me for calling this run surprising? No, we'll get to that in a little oh, bit. Okay, I'm not ready to drop that hammer <laughs> just yet. But the story of the tournament is Paula Badosa's big breakthrough. She's been building up to it throughout the year. She's had a ton of quality wins, beating top ten players, top five players. She's beaten Sabalenka, Bardi, Sviantek, Bencic, Rybakina this year. She won her first title this year. And what does she do at this tournament? She beats Yastremska, who, mind you, she has just completely fallen off the wagon mm. in recent months. Like I, I, All I'm seeing is first-round losses from Miss Half Moon. Yastremska, Goff, Krejcikova, Kerber, Jabir, Azarenko. This is... This is a murderer's role of WTA assassins this year. Yeah. And, of course, this is a 1,000-level tournament. You expect a really difficult draw. But this is a better, is a tougher draw than a lot of slam runs, to be honest. And, in a lot of ways, tougher because, well, I can't even say that because, Lord, this tournament was spread out over 72 days. I feel like it went on forever. (laughs) It's not that much different than than a slam. In, right. in that it feels regard. like it yeah. lasts as long. All eyes were on Emma Raducanu at this tournament. It was her first since she won the US Open, winning 10 matches all in straight sets from qualifying to titleist 
at 18 years old. We'd seen her in the interim, grace the cover of magazines, attend galas left, right, and center, sign endorsement deals all over the place. So, I mean, this was a money-making month mm -hmm. for Radhikanu, and she shows back up on the tennis court in Indian Wells. And I don't know who those folks were who actually had expectations for a deep yeah. run here. It made no sense to me. I, like She had this run, the two tournaments that she's done really well at this year, Wimbledon and the U.S. Open Fast Courts. This is not that. And you factor in all that she's been through, the grainy, clayey, gritty surface in Indian Wells, the heat. Like it, it just didn't make for a winning recipe for me. Right. And it's, it was only a few weeks from the end of the U.S. Open. She had done galas, photo shoots, everything. There were a lot of things to distract her if she wanted to be distracted. But for tennis observers, I think this was the most predictable result there is. It's, right? not, it's not even necessarily it's, about being distracted. Like She could show up and lose after putting in like three straight weeks of hard practice and it would still be, make sense, given yeah. the context of this WTA crop and era. You know? <laughs> right. Like we preach every week that literally anybody can win any given week and people go away for spells, come back for spells, have a cute two, three-week stretch, and then something doesn't quite work out, you know? it's. I'm not surprised by anything on the WTA no. tour. What would surprise you on the WTA tour? No. <laughs> if Kim Clijsters won Australia, would that surprise that you? Would, that would surprise me. What else yeah. would surprise you? If, I don't know. I'll have to think on that. Okay. The point is, there are not many things that would surprise us right, right. on the WTA tour. And I don't I don't really think it says much about Raducanu's future. There's just such a small sample size of results to go from here. She's currently trying to sort out the coaching thing, which is a little confusing. Not super interested in that, to be honest. A lot of folks are super yeah. interested in that, parsing her words. I don't know. People have like very strong opinions on it, and I really do not. Somebody who had a blitzing run to a Grand Slam title, Yelena Ostapenko, she had a good run at Indian Wells. Could she be a template for what possibly we could see with Raducanu? She went through a spell of struggle, and she's seemingly back in the fold, back in the mix, and she's still super young. Right. She's only 24 years old. She has four career titles. She just won Eastbourne in uh, June. I think... You know, Raducanu and her corporate backers would like to foresee a different career <laughs> for her. But Ostapenko is still very much in the mix. Which is why if I'm Emma Raducanu, I'm signing all the, all the contracts right now. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I, I'm not taking anything for granted. <laughs> the other spotlight, the other big spotlight at this tournament was on Leila Fernandez. Beaten finalist by Raducanu in New York. And she won a few rounds, looked good. She didn't look like she had any letdown from the U.S. Open. Was her spry, angling, redirecting, fist-pump-to-the-sky self at Indian Wells. Mm -hmm. I think she achieved what was expected, right? She she had good wins over Cornet and Pavlyuchenkova, so she lost to Shelby Rogers. A lot of people have. Ash Barty did. One of the stories for me of this tournament on the women's side was... Ms. Sasnovich, and you mm. had picked her a few years back 
when Sabalenka and her had that cute little Fed Cup run. Remember that? And you oh, said, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to take this result and extrapolate into the following season and pick Miss Sasanovich as my breakout player. Mm-hmm. And because it, it hasn't were, really happened to date. No, at the time there were the two Belarusians who were both poised to to do big things. Mm-hmm. Sabalenka the bigger hitter and she obviously has achieved uh, the number 2 ranking. At this tournament, she's the one who beat Raducanu, 6-2-6-4, and then she also took out Simona Halep, 7-5-6-4, before losing to Azarenka. Had she beaten Azarenka, she would have beaten three consecutive Grand Slam champions before the quarterfinals at this tournament. It's a tough ask in a lot of these WTA draws these days. There's a, there are many minefields, a lot of top heads to chop off. Oh, wow. It's very Game of Thr- Games of Throny on the WTA these days. Are you ready for me to to get into that whole bit about Azarenka and how you sure. were yeah. you were wrong? If you recall in our previous episode, we had talked about the WTA road to Guadalajara and how anybody I said anybody who was ranked around thirty in the rankings could still conceivably easily qualify for Guadalajara with a good run or a title run at Indian Wells. That there were so many people still in the mix. And who was one of those people? Ranked, I believe, number 30 at the time, Victoria Azarenka. Mm-hmm. You just said that nothing was expected of her. You were surprised. But hey, she was this close to winning the final and getting to, I believe, number 11. And we had mm-hmm. Paula Badosa, who was number 19, heading into this tournament, winning the title and getting to number 8. Yeah. So she she could be a lock at this point to qualify. Sakari qualified today. I believe she's, what, the sixth person to qualify so far? Of those six so far, one likely won't go in Ash Barty. And we had said, well, maybe Naomi will end up qualifying anyway, and she probably won't go either. But at this point, it looks like Naomi just will not qualify point blank period right so if you're looking to get into this field in guadalajara you have to get up to the number nine spot which is currently occupied by Jabeur. this week ons became the first arab woman to enter the official wta top 10 she's at number eight in the official rankings this was off the back of a semi-final performance in indian wells she's number nine in the race it's very possible that she'll qualify for the finals Badosa is at 8, Muguruza is at 7. Muguruza is playing this week in Moscow, trying to solidify her spot. Pavlyuchenkova is someone else to watch, who it, it is a bit of a long shot, but if she wins Moscow, she could also qualify. Still a lot of intrigue. Two to three spots still up for grabs on the women's side. I'm not sure what's going on on the men's side. That has been no, outside the scope of my bandwidth it's, to date. There are... I believe there are only two spots left. And Cam Norrie is up to number 10 in the ATP race, so he's got a shot. On the women's side, there are two more weeks of tennis. We've got the 500 event in Moscow and the 250 in Tenerife this week. And then next week, we've got Transylvania and Cormayur in Italy, which are both 250s. And there's some 125s sprinkled in. But really, it seems like Moscow is going to be the deal breaker for a lot of folks. Other ranking news, Roger Federer exits the top 10. 
It's It's been a long time coming. Some might say it's overdue. <laughs> we have seen some complaints from current players who are saying the modified ranking system due to COVID has inhibited their moves up the rankings. Their growth potential. Yes. Which... It has. We know this. Yeah, I mean, this, also... is, this is the biggest example of that. Right. Andrescu was another. She hung around those rankings forever. Mm-hmm. Kennen as well. But Federer has barely played in the last almost two years. Barely played. Yeah. And still is at number 11. If I am a lower ranked... I'm, I'm Honestly, I'm mad. I get that. <laughs> How could you begrudge somebody for being mad at that right well especially uh, last year the complaints were unfounded and even earlier this year i think they were unfair but now that we've gone through an entire season tennis is not back to normal but it's close there's a lot of tournaments to play if you're willing to travel during the pandemic a lot of players are vaccinated a lot of players who aren't vaccinated really don't care they're not really that worried so you're getting Almost everybody playing these tournaments. A bit of history was made the week of Indian Wells with Talon Griegspoor, now number 89th ranked Dutch player, winning his sixth challenger title of the season. And that ties a record held by four other people, one of whom achieved this already this year in Benjamin Bonzi and achieved it recently. This has all happened these two record makers, they're, they're getting to the top of the mountain moment happened since August. Hmm. They've both of them won essentially three challenges in a row, winning 15 matches in 20 days. Bonzi won one in France before the US Open, went to the US Open to qualify, didn't qualify, went back to France, and immediately played back to back challengers. The covidation of that, I don't understand. <laughs> well, it tells you that the rankings should be in a different place now because travel is way easier than it was in mm-hmm. 2020. That's a good point. Bonzi is up to number 63. He was able to win all of his challenges in France. Greek sport, he did his stretch of 15 matches in 20 days, starting in Murcia in Spain and then winning both Napoli challengers in Italy. Napoli 1 and Napoli 2. Mm-hmm. I have the three other players who have done this, won six challenges in a year. Did you know any of those three? <laughs> no. No, this isn't a quiz. So. I mean, other, I, I know who they you've are. You've heard of them But before. I wouldn't be able to guess it. The other three are Yunus Elanawi, Juan Ignacio Chela, and Facunda Bagnes. We've talked on previous episodes, recent episodes, that one of the stories that will get a lot of burn toward the end of the year and to start the year is Novak Djokovic's vaccination status and how that plays with his ability to play in Australia, depending on what the vaccine mandate situation is in Victoria, and possibly on a federal level in Australia. Yes. There's been movement on that this week. Mm -hmm. The Australian media does like to use Djokovic as the poster child for the anti-vax movement or (laughs) the vaccine skeptics in tennis, but he is a... a many times champion in Australia. He's the number one player. Obviously, this is newsworthy. Before there was movement in Australia, Djokovic uh, was interviewed by Blick, a Serbian newspaper, 
about his vaccine status. And he said, uh, kind of indignantly, I still don't know if I will go to Melbourne. I will not reveal my status, whether I've been vaccinated or not. It is a private matter and an inappropriate inquiry. And he went on to say that in his country, basically, this is private medical information and the person who asks could be charged, which I feel like is maybe, you know what, I'm not going to say anything because I don't know the law there, but it would be surprising to me. He said, people go too far these days in taking the liberty to ask questions and judge a person. Whatever you say, yes, no, maybe, I'm thinking about it, they will take advantage. So, do I think Novak will get vaccinated if it's required in Melbourne? Yes. Like, if it means he cannot go to Australia, I think he'll do it. We've seen many, many times, I don't know if I'm going to play Wimbledon, I don't know if I'm going to go to the Olympics. He likes to do this. He's going. There's also this idea circulating with a lot of players i saw daniel medvedev hint at it today in his statements that it'll be a situation of just avoiding the hard quarantine like last time which i don't think that that's gonna be the case in australia next year it's seeming to me that it's either you're vaccinated and you can enter the country or you're not yes uh since that interview with djokovic was published a few days later Alex Hawke, who is the immigration minister for Australia, confirmed that all visitors to Australia must be fully vaccinated. And it appears that there will be no accommodations like a strict two-week quarantine, no exceptions for pro athletes. And at this point, it appears that all tennis players coming to the Australian Open do have to be fully vaccinated. They don't have the option of staying in a hotel quarantine instead. Now, we said in our last episode, I think a lot of the vaccine hesitancy on the tennis tours is not deeply ideological. I think for most players, they saw it as an inconvenience. Maybe they were a little mistrustful of a logistical logistical thing. There are a lot of cultural issues at play here. But when it comes down to it, a lot of the people who've been the biggest skeptics have said, yeah, I'm going to get it. Andre Rublev said he's going to get it. Tsitsipas said, I will play under the conditions that have been set now. I think it's fair. And again, it reinforces this idea that they'll do it if it's mandatory. Like that that belief or mistrust in vaccines wasn't all that deeply held for most of the players. And if it is, let's say it is, Mm -hmm. how much are your moral beliefs worth to you? What monetary value will you put on that? Is it worth $70,000 for a first round loss minimum? Is it worth a cute little round of 16, couple hundred thousand? What are you willing to sacrifice monetarily to not be vaccinated? Right. And for someone like Djokovic, is it worth not changing history? Right? Because when he plays tennis, he's playing in the these lofty... Uh, Everything I do from now on has the potential to make tennis history, to make sporting history. Mm-hmm. Uh, are um, you are you willing to give that up? I don't think he is. In John Wortham's most recent mailbag, the point was made that with the comparison between Kyrie Irving and what he's been doing in the NBA and Novak Djokovic, you could make the argument that Djokovic has so much more to lose than mm-hmm. Kyrie Irving. He sure does. 
Uh, Novak does not have a union behind him. Novak is an independent contractor. And, I mean, Kyrie was already a flat earther. I mean, to be fair, Novak had already had some alarming scientific and medical opinions. Magic uh, drops. Neither player's vaccine stance is all that surprising. But Kyrie Irving is one star in a league full of stars. And Novak Djokovic is the, I mean, he's the superstar. He is possibly the GOAT. It's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And it's also not just Kyrie Irving versus the association. It's Novak Djokovic versus a government. Right, right. I think Novak is ultra sensitive to this stuff now, ever since he did that Insta Live with the Dr. Quack, whatever his name is, Dr. Phil, about the healing water. And he took a lot of flack and people made fun of him and we did too. Dr. And, Drew. And it was, it was earned, but he is definitely... Uh, I think he's resistant to to that kind of criticism, that kind of questioning, even more so now because of that. This false equivalency of damned if you do, damned if you don't doesn't play for me because you come out here and you say, yes, I'm vaccinated. I'm going to Australia. Who are you pissing off? Right. Most people would just forget it. <laughs> There's a small percentage of people who will hate you regardless. But for most people, us include you, I know you probably think we're haters, but Djokovic getting vaccinated is a victory for all of us. I mean, but, but keep in mind, we are the pro-vaccine podcast. We are. Evangelical, basically. <laughs> We're going to have to call out for some more five-star reviews from the UK because another one star has popped up. And the title of it is Pro-Vaccine Podcast. What do you do with that? It's like, yeah, correct. M- move on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's like when someone reviews a restaurant and they're like, my Uber Eats driver took too long to get here. Okay, well, I will disregard this review. Thank you. On to the next one. The whole thing is frustrating and I'm tired of it because for all the ranting we do and all the moralizing, there is no way that people's minds get changed by shaming them or exposing them. It doesn't work, right? They just like, double down. It's frustrating, but we're at this point in the pandemic where everybody is angry at everybody, and I'm really tired of being angry at people for things they do or don't do. Um, yes, I'm tired of being angry. Um, I'm just hesitant to engage in any kind of dialogue, proactively or by omission, by abstaining, that gives credence to these positions right and there there is like this disease of balance in our political culture where there are two sides to an issue and both are equally valid this is demonstrably not true in almost every issue there is but this is how we learned this is this is what we learned in school somebody who's gotten a lot of media play this year in part due to his improved play probably in greater part due to his increasingly loud mouth, is Riley Opelko. <laughs> Riley contains multitudes. Right? He's into fashion, he's into art, he's into Venus Williams, he's into John Isner, and his brand these days is straight talker, truth teller. His brand is straight man talking. 
That's what his brand is. It is, I have opinions, listen to me, and I don't give a shit what you say. There are only so many and times when you can say, I don't give a shit what you say, mm-hmm. without us not believing that. Yes. Because so historically speaking, when you say that... Maybe you, you care a little. Just a like, little. Bill Simons did an interview with Riley recently that got a lot of play on social media. And as you said, he... He said several times, I don't care what people say. I don't give a shit what you say. Like, okay, like, we got it. Okay, thank you. Just tell us your opinion. I th- I think maybe now, because I'm older, I'm more wary of people who say, I just tell it like it is. And because I lived through the Trump era. I think it's warranted to be skeptical of people who say, oh, I just tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, cool. You tell uh, your truth. Okay, thanks. You don't tell the truth. You tell a truth. Yeah, and there there is interesting stuff buried in this interview, but it was like the way that Riley comes off is that if you if you object, set up this sort of opposition, right? If you're saying, "Oh, I disagree with what Riley says about the media," then you're this old fuddy-duddy or you have you have skin in the game, right? It's almost like there's no way to reasonably criticize what he's saying without coming off like the like the man like the institution so what did he say this time (laughs) well he said multiple times in the past that tennis media is horrible so simons says you said the tennis media sucks and riley replies these guys are terrible there's some bad journalists you have some guys that just criticize they look to be super negative guys that know nothing about tennis i think we have the worst media of any sport quite frankly there are certainly those people out there. Like, there there are some truths in what Riley is saying. Simons, to his credit, does try to moderate and dig each time Riley says something like that. It's like, what, you, you think all of the journalists are useless? You don't, you know, you don't see them working their ass off overnight to file stories. And he does get Opelka to sort of walk back a little of it. But he's definitely someone who's prone to these these big like strident remarks yeah yeah simon says do you think there are reporters who do have an understanding who work hard to tell the story of the game and bring personalities alive riley says i'm sure there are but none of the ones that interview me or none of the ones that i've done pressers with not one none zero (laughs) i'm in the finals of toronto and these guys are asking me what's wrong with american tennis why aren't there any american players in the top 30 The same in Rome. I'm in the semis and they're finding the negative. I'm 23 and playing Rafa. Things are quite all right. I'm in the finals of Toronto and we're going to talk about how Americans don't win slams. Right. And he's got a point there. Those questions are very annoying and you hear them repeatedly. I think there's just a bit of exaggeration going on. Right. But (laughs) by the same token that you're wanting to lambast this search for the next great American. Why aren't there Americans in the top 30? Why isn't an American winning slams? You are also benefiting from it. You're benefiting from the added attention of being an American in a Western-focused media setting. Tennis is already Mm. niche in its reporting and its coverage, and you have that built in as an American. So you, you have a platform that players from other countries might not have. You probably have access to wild cards. Um, and Riley is not 
like the institution. You know, he's not somebody... He's not a Harrison who, or a Saw. Exactly. So I want to be fair there. But there are definite privileges to being American or Anglo or Western European in the tennis yeah, world. To me, right? it speaks to a lot of thin skin. <laughs> right. It was funny to me that he's talking to a tennis journalist and he's basically saying, like, all of you guys absolutely suck. But I, I thought there was some there were some nuggets about like why do you need this generation of Americans to be Sampras and Agassi when first of all Roddick and Blank weren't Sampras and Agassi and listen like it's it's not going to happen so enjoy what you have which I appreciate I don't that's think a, he's saying it's not going to happen well he kind of is <laughs> you think so oh yeah he he's even saying like the younger crop Corda and Brooksby are far more likely to be slam winners than his mini generation. Mm-hmm. He said that. I mean, you never know what's going to happen. Riley could break through. Fritz could in a big way. But he... I guess I appreciate the realism. Like, you could also just appreciate what you have in the current generation of Americans. What I don't like is this opposition of, like, player versus journalist. Because it sort of assumes that journalists have power that... I don't know that they do, practically. Of course, reporters have the power to agenda set. They have the power to, in some ways, shape the way that people see players. But at the same time, a lot of reporters are freelance. The jobs are drying up. It's very expensive to travel. Covering tennis is more and more difficult, constantly. So the people you're talking about are not the privileged newspaper crop, for the most part. Their people, if they work in newspapers, are probably fighting with their editors to get funding to travel. A lot of the people don't even have a cushy newspaper job. They might be paying their own way. They're filing stories constantly to be able to afford the travel. There's this weird privilege gap that I don't know that he fully appreciates. I'm just wary when people say, y'all are just here criticizing. Well... Well, that's the other thing, right? A journalist, even a sports journalist, their job is is not merely to celebrate. Moving past Apelka and further into this relationship between player and tennis journalist, there was a, a letter issued by the British Tennis Journalists Association, the BJTA. I did not know that this existed. Did you? No. And I saw the headline and I said, thanks, love. I'm good. But you have since but you forced had me to, to read, read it. it because it's on the agenda. <laughs> it's a letter to the ATP and WTA tours dated October 2021. Do you want me to read the whole thing or no, just summarize? No. Tell me tell me the broad strokes. Okay. Essentially, they want the Zoom era of post-match post-match pressers and pre-tournament interviews to end. They do not see a reason why, given that most tournaments are played in warm climates, that even in this COVID era, we can't have outdoor interview settings. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe like, a little bit tricky in during the indoor season. That might not quite work. Sure. But what we've seen recently is journalists showing up on site, and they're in their press room, where they normally are, but they're still dialing in to Zoom calls <laughs> on the same yes. site. They cited an example like the Ryder Cup, where they had open-air press conferences 
done safely and where journalists could still access the players. Tennis is lagging behind in this area, in, in mm. their view. They say it almost goes without saying that the, that the present system favors reporting from home and has the danger of encouraging editors to believe they can cover tennis without sending anyone to events. I understand this because mm -hmm. this was already a concern before the pandemic. The cost of traveling to tournaments was already proving prohibitive for many freelancers, and even those of us lucky enough to be in a staff job have had to work increasingly hard in recent years to convince editors to authorize trips abroad. Makes perfect sense. Right. One of the other main points is that the Journalist Association feels that the lack of access to players will negatively affect their coverage and will eventually prevent them from building relationships with players. They also say that now at tennis tournaments, we have fans back on site. We have players now allowed out and about at most tournaments, fans able to move freely around the concourses and interact with players, and members of the media required to be fully vaccinated at many events. It feels as if press conferences and other media interactions are lagging behind. That was to your point before about how tennis is behind in this regard. Mm -hmm. It may give the signal to journalists that tournaments don't really value what they do, which is very possible, uh, that they're kind of an afterthought, or if there's an opportunity to save money or save the, uh, the headache of administration, that <laughs> they simply don't need to have an in-person press room and press conferences. Can I just say to my impression from being in press conferences, and I don't know if this has been the case with you, is that there's often an overarching feeling. And that's because the ATP and the WTA are so involved in these things. They have representatives at every press conference that one of their players is at. That the net goal is to make sure that nothing too calamitous comes out of these press conferences, rather than getting coverage out of the player and the sport. Yeah. Do you get that? I, I do. I know, say, if Kyrie Irving is being interviewed, the NBA cares if Kyrie is going to be causing a shitstorm that they're going to have to deal with. But but you've got heavy hitters from the Times, from the LA Times. Yeah. For, you know, that, that's just what you have to deal yeah. with, right? Like, you don't have any control over that. But it's not necessarily the most neutral setting, I would say. From my experience. Right. It is moderated by uh, a tour comms person. You know, you, you always feel that presence. And so that's part of the reason I think a lot of this feels like it. these conferences just go by rote. Mm -hmm. like, you, you know have, what's going to happen. You also have in some instances Isha Price showing up to a Serena Williams <laughs> press conference and she's looking around the right, room. Right, right. It's like, well, what's going on here? Am I looking out for whether I'm getting that look from the WTA person? <laughs> Am I looking... For the look I'm getting from Serena, yeah, yeah. am I looking from Ish, looking for Isha's look? Like you know, to be a good reporter, you have to have guts. Mm -hmm. You have to have the audacity. This is why I didn't decide to be a journalist because I can't do that. I can't deal with that feeling yeah. of making people uncomfortable or mad. Right? Yeah, I'm just saying. In tennis, it seems to me there are more stifled layers. Yeah, for yeah. journalists than there are in other sports. So I think. This letter brings up a lot of points about why access is important in sports writing, but I think it misses because Naomi Osaka and some other players this year gave the press and tournaments an opportunity, 
to rethink how we do press, right? And I, I don't know what that looks like. Like I, I'm trying to think of solutions here, but I don't know exactly what it looks like, what players want, what will give us good reporting, good journalism. I know that it probably doesn't look like the traditional press conference. So I think that's that's a gap in the thinking here. Mm-hmm. What's also something that stood out to me in this letter, and I was reading it and I was like, okay, okay, mm-hmm, makes sense. Yeah, I, I see your point. Lots to talk about there, but you know, we're heading in the right direction. And at the, and at the end of this letter, to tack on to what you were just saying about the opportunities mm-hmm. Naomi Osaka has afforded everybody in tennis this year with press conferences... These folks had the gall and the audacity, the program in which we're recording this podcast, (laughs) (laughs) to end their letter by saying many players would be comfortable with the old-fashioned approach. Okay, they're saying in Mm. person, most players would be okay with that. In the next sentence, quote, As Naomi Osaka told us at the U.S. Open... It's really off-putting just to be seated in front of a screen. Maybe that's one of the reasons why I feel like a lot of nerves. But it feels much better to be talking to a human. I almost wanted to throw my phone. Like, I I was beside myself. Like, who thought of this? Well, because the way it's written implies that Naomi Osaka is one of the players who would prefer the traditional approach. Which and is, she has said point blank, period. Explicitly. That she doesn't. Explicitly. There's no confusion about right. that. It also gives the impression that Naomi Osaka is co-signing, right? Like she's in agreement with us. I said I said a few moments ago that to be a reporter, you have to have the audacity. <laughs> so clearly. Reform is in order. Changes are needed. These British journalists are right in many regards, saying that at some point, maybe it's past due, maybe it's in time for the end of the season, maybe it's needed by Australia. We're all required to be vaccinated. We need to get back to how things were. Because there is merit in that, in that it's hurting their work product. I've been on some of those virtual Zoom calls. It's not the same. No. And it, it also affords fewer opportunities to newcomers. Yeah. It, it, um, one of the biggest detriments is follow-up questions. Yeah. You get in your queue on the Zoom in the moderator chat, and you're not quite sure when you're going to be called on most times, and then you're called on, and then you can reasonably expect sometimes to get two questions. But if the person asks something that you want to follow up on, you're already muted. Yeah. So you can't. And then you have to get back in line. You can't give nonverbal cues to the moderator as you would in person. So maybe put your hand up and like put your index, index finger up and be like, one more question, please. I got to follow up. There's uh, an inorganicness to the yeah. Zoom press conferences. So it's even more unnatural than the normal yes. press conference. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of players who prefer this. Like, it's easier. They can sit in front of a screen. It's definitely less intimidating. But here we are. Yeah, I mean, just don't do that at the end of that letter. Just <laughs> let's not. <laughs> yeah. We have a, a holdover question from our previous uh, mailbag. James McGuirk has posed this question several times now, so we we really need to answer it. Mm-hmm. 
we uh, apologize, James, uh, your namesake. We weren't quite sure how to tackle it the first time it was posed, and then the follow-up made it so much easier for us to access it. James also, like me, one of his first tennis memories is watching the 1994 Wimbledon final with Conchita. Wow. I was in diapers back then. Huh. That is a, a really um, delayed nine-year-old. <laughs> Shut up. Excuse me. I would prefer to be vague about my age. <laughs> James says, I think a more interesting discussion for your podcast would be, who decides which tournaments a player plays? Is it the player, their coach, their agent, or anyone else? And what are the factors in their choices? Do they prioritize prize money and ranking points, appearance fees, sponsorship considerations, wider goals around the player's growth and development, or anything else? Are there any interesting case studies in recent years of players who had interesting slash good slash bad tournament selection strategies that you think are worth discussing on the pod? And previously, James had used the example of Aranska Rus as somebody who plays on a lower level consistently as opposed to somebody who maybe tries to qualify for what would have been premier events, now masters events, etc. This is a great question. There are a lot of aspects to it, and I think it would require actually speaking to players and probably, as James pointed out later, retired players mm-hmm. who have a bit more freedom to, to speak without all those other obligations, yeah. coaching and sponsors and all that. There are a lot of answers to these that we don't have. But we can make the comparison with Taylor Townsend a few years ago, who repeatedly in the spring of her seasons did not travel to Europe. She played in America leading up to the French Open at ITF events. Aranska Rus this year, she's won three ITF finals and lost in a final of another. She's made the final of uh, WTA 125. She's played a bunch of 250s. The majority of our success has come on clay. All those ITF tournaments were on clay. And she's up to a career high number 61 as a 30-year-old. So that's been her strategy. And it's been working out for her. Not dissimilar to Taylor in that that's about the the crest of Taylor's career ranking-wise. I believe in the, in the mm. 60s or thereabouts. Taylor was starting to have big breakout runs. Like right before the pandemic and right before she became pregnant and had her child. But Taylor was getting criticized for not playing these big events constantly or having mm-hmm. sort of a weak schedule. And she explained like, listen, the money is not there. We are self-funded as independent contractors. If I can get points and money by playing in these tournaments, that's what I'm going to do. Like, that's how I'm planning my life. She wasn't going to go start at one of these bigger tournaments in the spring try to qualify, potentially lose, try to qualify again, lose again, and not make any money. And you just mentioned that Bonzi won a challenger in Europe, flew over to New York. France, went to New York, back to France. To try to qualify for the US Open, back to France. That costs money. Mm-hmm. Like, all of this costs money. <laughs> Whereas, Talon Greekspor plays in Spain, flies to Italy for two tournaments in Napoli, we did that ex- exact flight, pretty much. Mm-hmm. It's not that much. It's totally different. Yeah, I mean, you know they're flying commercial. It's he might t- be on Ryanair. 
it's totally different from flying across the Atlantic. So that, that is definitely a consideration, I think. Um, mm-hmm. The sponsorship angle is interesting because people with the big agencies like IMG, it's much easier for them to get wild cards to certain events. Mm-hmm. So definitely those events will be just penciled into their calendar, probably assuming they'll either qualify or get a wild card. One of the players who had a lot to say about this rankings freeze is Holgerun. He took to his Instagram page after going through his homophobia scandal earlier in this year to be loud again, rightfully decrying the rankings freeze, but also, I guess, blind to his own privilege in the number of wildcards that he's been benefiting from that his countrywoman Clara Towson did not. And so many other men on the on the ATP have not had. Yeah, because he leaned very firmly on the unfairness aspect. And it's another example of, you're making some good points here, but you're also missing something. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, who are we? Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. You did make a point. Okay. That is a, <laughs> I'm entering a new era. That's a frightfully yeah. optimistic I'm entering view my, from you. I'm entering my understanding era. The my escape era. Ten, ten, two, one. What is that? Like what is it? Like B day. Nine, nine four eight. Two? Nine four eight one. Nine four eight one. It's B day. Yeah. This is my new era. But this is a a great prompt that I hope other people don't steal because it would be interesting to ask actual current and retired players this question. Because I'd like to know more about how they. Build Are you going to do it? Are you going to ask them? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? I'd like to see that impetus from you going forward in 2022. All right. Thank you, James. Not me, other James. Thank both of you. Mm -hmm. We have revived the dramatic reading segment of the Body Serve for an important event. A very short revival. Brevity is the soul of wit. Serena Williams answered a question on Instagram Live recently. Someone asked her thoughts on Maria Sharapova, and she said... What about her? I got a chance to hang out with her at Met Gala. She's fun. We talked, we clicked, we laughed. We talked about tennis. And it was really, really fun. And I loved it. You did not just say tennis. I did. (laughs) That's how she pronounces tennis. (laughs) Is it not? It is. We know Ms. Serena Jamika Williams is a known liar. Listen, you and the army are doing the most with this whole thing. Yes, Serena Williams has lied multitudinously in the past. I believe her in this moment. We have corroboration from Venus. Do you think they conspired to push this Sharapova narrative? She also didn't have to answer that. Nobody is seeing the questions Mm -hmm. that are showing up in her IG Live DMs. Okay, Lisa Barlow, I believe her. (laughs) Don't you dare (laughs) compare me to Lisa Barlow. For those of you who don't know, Lisa Barlow is a a character, I guess, on Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, who is becoming the villain this season. Talk about a known liar. Uh, Exactly. The Serena thing made me laugh because it was very flowery, very, uh, I loved it. She's it just made fun. Me, it made me chuckle. <laughs> I 
they love fashion. They both love fashion. Yeah. They're at this big fashion event. And you know what? Little people like us do not understand what it's like to be either of them. So maybe they're besties now. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Caroline gave her a talking to. Caroline's hair yes. was at the Knicks game yesterday. Mm-hmm. We were watching the Knicks <laughs> opener because I'm a Knicks fan. And they're showing all these celebs in the seats. Spike Lee in his... Uh, what would you call that? I mean, that, a hound's houndstooth. Tooth jacket mm-hmm. suit with I feel like he orange was, satchel he was, and orange glasses. Yeah, he was dressed like uh, Grace Coddington. You know who she is? I do not. She's like the former uh, like creative director of Vogue. She's a very distinctive look. Mm-mm, don't know. Okay. But the camera pans to David Lee, and there we see in the corner of the shot are Caroline's tresses, her golden locks mm-hmm. waving at us. At, attached to who we believe was Caroline Wozniacki. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, uh, the network didn't think she was famous enough to show. Well, David Lee was only famous there because he is a former Nick. Right, right. A much beloved former Nick. We did have to see Igloo Australia a lot of times. Mm. I was not aware that she was still in the talk. Apparently she did the halftime show. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well. Does the NBA have a halftime show? It's more like where they bring out like the local high school's step team for example i mean basketball at the mecca at msg is a totally different different experience than from most other places okay you've been to the acc the scotia bank arena in toronto yeah oh it's now the scotia (laughs) yeah yeah we can keep track quickly let's talk about the hall of fame nominees this is always fodder for tennis twitter to go off for a few days and listen this is the the result of having Hall of Fame nominations every single year. Tennis is a young sport. It's only been professionalized since 1968. Over the next few years, with the big four dominating the Grand Slams, we're going to run out of quality. Mm-hmm. And this is not to, uh, to well, criticize... On the, on the men's side. Yes. But between Serena and Venus, there was a lot of domination of the majors as well and justine so this is not to criticize the careers of the folks who have been nominated but you do have to wonder like what what is the purpose of a hall of fame are you nominating people because you have to or because they contributed in such a historic important way ultimately doesn't really mean anything everybody knows who the the really really great players are right is anybody going to go to newport and be confused that flavia panetta is in the hall of fame or isn't or what you know like Like, it'll be a cute little museum tour moment where mm -hmm. you read the plaque you see a nice little garment maybe uh, a racket and you read about what miss panetta did and then you keep it moving Mm -hmm. and then you know you go look at like the five wall mural celebration of the Williams sisters you know right and Billie Jean King and Rod Laver mm. and so uh. the nominees this year are Flavia Anna Ivanovich Carlos Moya Cara Black and Lisa Raymond and Juan Carlos Ferrero Lisa Raymond and Juan Carlos Ferrero are both what they called holdovers from previous years having not been nominated mm-hmm. prior which is interesting because in my view Lisa and Kara are the most qualified of anyone nominated. 
Now, there isn't a distinct doubles wing in the Tennis Hall of Fame, but if there were, Lisa Raymond and Kara Black would surely be in it. But remember, mixed doubles doesn't count. We don't know why it's still a thing. We don't know why they get paid. That that's, money should go to other people. That's not us. That is Riley Opelka. But Lisa Raymond won six majors in women's doubles, five mixed. Kara Black won ten majors overall, split across women's doubles and mixed. Lisa played for 25 years. She won 79 titles overall. So if you value doubles, obviously she's a Hall of Famer. If you value longevity... It doesn't always have to be, I'm reminded of Dorian Corey. <laughs> like, uh-huh. if you shoot an arrow and it reaches the stars, hooray for you or something like that. But there, there's beauty in just getting through. Yes. So, something like that. That's the tenor yeah. of it. But, I mean... Like, you have great accomplishments. You may not have been the best, but what you did over such a long time, being relevant over such a long time, is still an achievement of itself. Mm-hmm. I think we are possibly moving to an era where we find value in a more varied number of ways Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. than we have in the past. And like you said, because there's going to be such a paucity of high, high achievers in future Hall of Fame classes, maybe that will happen out of necessity. What are you going to have? Like a few years where nobody is nominated, (laughs) where nobody is inducted. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the Hall of Fame has already set the precedent that one major gets you in. Mm -hmm. So Flavia, one major, one One Indian One singles major. And one one doubles major. No, I'm saying you said the... Oh, sorry. One singles major gets you in. Yes. If you're a high achiever in doubles, the (laughs) threshold is much higher. Mm -hmm. For Flavia, she won an Indian Wells title, a U.S. Open title. I think she has 11 altogether. Carlos Moya, to me, on the single side, is is kind of the best bet, the, the, the best candidate, having been number one, uh, winning Roland Garros, winning 20 titles altogether, including three Masters titles. But uh, Ferrero and Ivanovic are, are kind of on that level as well. And so I guess part of the criteria has to be what kind of impact these players have on the sport. Ivanovic was a brief number one, Roland Garros champion, she made a few other major finals, but her career didn't take the course that people expected it to after she reached number one. But is she a transformational figure for Balkan tennis? Like, is that something that the Hall of Fame wants to honor? And if so, Ivanovic is uh, an easy choice. It's clear there's a lot of vagueness when it comes to criteria. Yes. And... Uh... I'm, I'm honest, I just don't even really care. Why am I a gatekeeper of who a tennis hall of famer is? Like it's, Right, right. Tommy Robredo announced his retirement recently. Tommy, uh, part of that that Spanish Armada yep. of the mid-2000s that really came to prominence, of course. The head honcho, Mr. Nadal, is still playing. But he was from like maybe that, that earlier class that kind of matured, belong with the Ferreros... I guess that was 2002, 2003 mm-hmm. with Ferrero. Ferrer, uh, Nicolas Almagro, Lopez. Robredo reached his career high of number five in 2006. Won 12 ATP titles, making 23 finals. 12 and 11 in those finals. 10 of those 11 titles came on clay. His other title came on an indoor hard court in Metz in 2007. 
He's a seven-time Slam quarterfinalists. Not surprisingly, five of those happened at the French Open, but also he made the quarterfinals at the Australian Open and the US Open. He was not just a one-trick pony. He also had a Masters title in Hamburg when it was a Masters event in 2006, also winning doubles at the Masters level with Nadal in Monte Carlo in 2008. That'll make for an interesting trivia question for somebody somewhere around the world at some point. I always liked Tommy Robredo. He's 39 now. Uh, He wasn't afraid to play at any level, right? When he was in his mid-30s, he was trying to rebuild and playing on the challenger level. I always enjoyed watching him play. He was also the guy who gave Andy Murray the middle finger at net (laughs) after they played one of those almighty three-set matches. Not dissimilar to what Andy played against Francis Tiafo this week (laughs) in Antwerp. So you remember those two little girls in Italy who were playing tennis on the roof last year during lockdown. Panetta and Vinci. (laughs) Vittoria e Carola uh, in northern Italy. And then Roger Federer surprised them by showing up on the roof. Well, Roger has gotten both girls a week at his husband's Rafa Nadal Academy (laughs) in Manacor. He promised them that he was going to do it, and he's made that wish come true. Mm, Yeah. That pretty much brings us to the end of this episode. Mm -hmm. We will be launching our GoFundMe sometime in November, right? Sometime around there? Yeah, later, sometime. Yeah. This is episode 243 of The Body Serve. We are approaching a big milestone on this podcast. Do you know what that is? I do. We're very close to a half million downloads. That's... It, it It's crazy to me. Like, mm-hmm. the entire year, I've been doing the math on, like, how many episodes will we realistically release before the end of the year? <laughs> and will we be able to hit that by the end of the year? And I think it's safe to say we will hit that in the next... By episode 245, I think. Okay. It'll happen. Okay, cool. We'll be a half millionaire. <laughs> if only those were dollars. <laughs> uh, Jonathan recently launched Mouse Pads. On our Redbubble site. So BodyServe branded mouse pads. Well, Redbubble launched the mouse right, pads. But they you, made them available. I mean, you did the work between mm-hmm. the two of us. Okay. <laughs> I, I like to have a standalone mouse. I can't do the little trackpad mm-hmm. or whatever. So I will be purchasing one for myself. We need to... I mean, I have this mouse pad here. I collect frogs. It was a thing that happened when I first started college, I think. Or maybe even slightly before college. And now everybody knows to just buy me frogs. I get frogs all the time. I just received a fanciful golf-playing frog Mm -hmm. in the last couple weeks who is um, just keeping watch over our living room. And this mouse pad is of a frog, and it is dirty. It is... Old. Old. It's going on 20 years old. (laughs) (laughs) But it's still working. I think maybe it's time for an upgrade. Yeah. So if you... Like us, still use mouse pads. You can go to redbubble.com, search the body serve, and you'll find mouse pads with six different designs on them. All right. So let's wrap up. Thank you for listening. I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. I'm Jonathan at tennis underscore John. We are at the body serve on Twitter, Instagram. Google us, download us, review us. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.